Well, hello, everybody. You folks doing all right tonight? Yes, Wayne? I am, too. All right. Why don't we go ahead and get started? We're talking about ancient church history, of course, uh, starting from about the birth of, of Christ until about 590 A.D. when Columba went to Scotland, was sent by the Pope, and that constitutes a little difficult to determine when you want to say ancient church history began or ended and then medieval church began, but uh, we'll, we'll call it for the 590. We've, uh, this is now week four, and we have new problems now in the church, and that is, what is authoritative? Is it the local bishop? Is it the elders? Is it the Old Testament scripture? We have this letter from this apostle named Paul called Thessalonians or Corinthians. We have lots of other things. Shepherd of Hermes, Gospel of Thomas. What do you think, Paul? All right. Okay. So it beats me. I don't know. All right. So... Let's have, a, let's have a little short review and discussion. We're going to talk about the four primary cities, some theological heresies, what do we believe and why, and then we're going to get into how we got our New Testament scriptures. Short review and discussion. Galatians 4.4. Remember that verse? In the fullness of time, God brought forth his son, born of a virgin under the law. Okay. What does that mean? What did we talk about? Remember? What were some of the things that led up to the coming of Christ? What did God orchestrate to have happen historically, politically, for the coming of the Lord? Okay, right? You had the Romans. Remember I said there were, th- there were three things, three big categories of things that, that took place. And the first one is the Roman peace. Remember, Caesar Augustus, Octavian, assumes power in um, about 14 B.C., I think, and reigned one of the longest reigning periods of time. He was a super administrator, implemented peace across the Roman Empire. All right, so we had the Roman peace. You had the Roman roads. You had various legions posted around the known world, around the Mediterranean world. And there was lots of different ethnic groups, but there was, as long as you paid your taxes, obeyed the laws, you can worship whoever you want, do whatever you want, go go wherever you want, just don't cause trouble. All right, so that's the first thing. We have... The first thing that God did in bringing about the world situation. All right. Now, what's the second or third? Common language, language, which was? Greek. Greek, Exactly. Who was implemented? Who was one of the key figures in helping make that happen? Alexander the Great. Okay. Remember, anytime you read in history, so-and-so, comma, the great, that usually means two things. One, 
they did really significant things, but they usually were great sinners. I know that sounds politically incorrect, but you have Catherine the Great of Russia. Okay, you have Peter the Great of Germany. Peter was quite a character, had work ethic written all over him, would ride around in his carriage or his horse throughout Germany. If he saw anybody loafing, he'd get off and beat him with a whip and tell him to get busy. All right? And so, anyway, that's just a little anecdote. You don't, that's free. Okay. So, uh, so we have Alexander the Great. Alexander had ambition beyond words and swept across out of Macedonia, across the known world, defeated foe after foe, mowed through the Persians, kept on going, wore out his army. Sometimes he would come to battles and the enemy would just give up and say, we'll join your army. Hey, that's the way to do it. Sun Tzu, you know, in the art of war said, create such fear in your enemy that they don't even fight. That's the best way to win wars. And so... Alexander did that, went all the way to the Indus River at the border of India. His army said, hold it. We're not going anymore. We've been on the road for three and a half years. We have marched across all of the known world. And Alexander reluctantly gave in. All right. But remember, Alexander, his personal tutor was Socrates. Excuse me. I'm sorry. Aristotle was Aristotle. Between them, they wanted the Greek language to flourish because there was this love of Hellenism. All right. Um, Let me just quickly go down here. Hellenism is uh, the word for Greece. And this whole area here, we call it Macedonia in the northern part, Achaia in the southern part. But this is the Hellespont. Okay. And so that's where we get the word Hellenism. And you had a Hellenist party in Israel who were Jews, but they said, listen, this Greek philosophy is marvelous. Yeah, we kind of like the Old Testament scriptures, too. We'll kind of marry those two things together, sort of. You had a fellow by the name of, oops, you had a fellow by the name of Philo down here in Egypt, uh, in Alexander that was a contemporary of Paul and he tried to put Aristotelian science together with the Old Testament scriptures and philosophy. But let's come back to where we were. So you had Greek philosophy, Greek language that became just the common ordinary language of the people. You had historically in the development of Greek, you had ancient Greek, Plato and uh, Socrates and others before him. Then you had a period of roughly, oh, about 800 years where the language was very commonly spread. That was the Greek that the apostles wrote in. It was the Greek that people spoke, transacted business, transacted laws. It was the language of Jesus uh, when, when he spoke Greek. And so you had that Greek language. So, all right, we have Roman law. We're back here talking about what did God do. 
So you have Roman law, Greek language, and, pre- and by the way, Greek precision of communication. In English, we are usually concerned about time in our language, when something happened. Okay, we have past, present, future tenses. Greek does too. But Greek language emphasized what kind of action took place. So was it action that person A did to person B? Was it action that the individual did upon themselves? Was it the action of others upon others? And there's nuances associated with it. But there's a precision about it that God brought about in the development of language that in turn was incorporated into the New Testament to communicate God's grace. So give him, give praise and glory to God about that. All right, so we have two. There's one more. A third thing, third element that went into this, which is, must be late. All right, okay. Judaism, right? The Old Testament scriptures, the, Judea, Judea, the Jews brought the Old Testament scriptures and the concept of monotheism, one God. You had throughout the rest of mankind, polytheism, polygons. We had gods for trees, gods for bushes, gods for fish, gods for animals, gods for everything. All right? Jews said, nope, there's one God that's created all of this. And those three threads woven together are constituted in that verse. Okay, let's keep going. By the way, let's stop. Though, and I, I encouraged you last week. Raise your hand if you have comment, question. Don't don't hesitate. Does this make sense? What we just said, Becca. Yeah. I'm sorry. I don't quite get it. Um, get what? Why that particular time was in the fullness of time? I mean. Well, th- think about what was necessary. God has Jesus being born. He's going to be going to grow, mature, teach, preach. The Gospels are going to get written. The Gospel message is going to need to get distributed throughout the known world. How is that going to happen if we are living in an environment where everybody is in a hovel and afraid to step outside because there are going to be bands of marauders that are going to kill you? Okay. In the Roman Empire... You got on the Appian Way, just walk off to Rome. All right. So don't mean to be simplistic, but those kinds. All right. And you have precision of language in Greek that was able to be used. That's an example. Yeah, that's good. That's good. And the Romans copied the Assyrians because the Assyrians would impale people on pointed posts. Um, And the Romans looked at that and said... We can improve on that. And they did. All right. Um, what was the early, why was the early ancient church persecuted? They weren't against How so? They wanted to hear things or another God. Right, right. They didn't want to worship the state. Remember now, let's, uh, let's take what Bob was just talking about. Remember, especially during the great persecution by Diocletian, 
right in the early 300s. Every person in the empire, every adult, was to go to the local temple to Rome, and they were all over the place in cities. And there were magistrates there. And you would come in, and there's a urn of sorts here with incense, powdered incense in it, and the flames burning, and there's a bust uh, or statue of the emperor. All you have to do, come in, get a little pinch of incense, drop it in the flame, poof, and you, and you repeat the words in the presence of a magistrate that Emperor Diocletian or Marcus Aurelius or whoever is Lord. Thank you very much. See you next year. Okay? You can go home and do whatever you, if you're the bishop of the church, you go home and do whatever bishops do. If you're a presbytery, if you're a, a, a deacon or just a member of the church, you can do whatever you do as long as you've done that. It takes five minutes tops. But the Christians would not do this. Now, if you were then given a second chance and you didn't obey, you were then threatened with your life and taken off to prison. You could be persecuted and tortured. If you survived, if they chose not to murder you and you survived, you were called a confessor. You would go back home. You would perhaps, you may be maimed. There, was a, there were bishops in, uh, with Constantine at the Council of Nicaea. One bishop's hands were not able to be used because he had been so broken. Another had had his eye gouged out. Common kinds of things. Women had their teeth broken out. Women were raped. People were dragged through the streets. They were pulled apart on racks. They were uh, put on wheels and ground up. They were fed to animals. It's horrible kinds of things. It did not occur all the time, but when it did, it was usually intense. So, however, if you were able to survive that and the magistrates didn't usually behead you, you were called a confessor. Now, let's go another route. Many of those that were confessors were witnesses to people as to the power of the gospel, and people came to faith in the Lord, seeing that kind of faith in action. There was, however, though, many, we would estimate thousands of Christians who gave in. Sitting at home, wife says, honey, we've got to go down to the temple tomorrow. And Sergius is going to be there. We put this off as long as we can. We either go tomorrow on our own or they're coming for us. What are you going to do? We have three small kids. We have only money from one day to the next, and it's all based on your job, sweeping the streets. So many would go, and despite their conscience, would say the emperor is Lord. Now you have a traitor. We get the word traitor from it. So now let's just play this out. We have Community Bible Chapel in Rome. Sitting here is Ron. 
And Ron is a confessor. He has survived torture, but his arms are useless because they've been broken. He's had one eye gouged out. We'll pick fictitious Paulus here. Paulus, however, is a traitor. Current church decisions are that there are three things for which we cannot forgive. One is adultery. Second is murder. And third, confession of the emperor as Lord. Now, are we going to allow Paulus to join us and rejoin us? Barbara says, says yes. We have what? Right. For those of you that are listening at some point in the future on this tape, Barbara Godina is on record of saying, yes, we ought to allow the person back in. People fail in sin. Go ahead. Okay. Becca Murdoch's on record, cites Peter as, as uh, denying the Lord three times. Anybody else? Oh, I was hoping I was going to have some stalwart on the other side that says, no way, but okay. We have the benefit of the Gospels and, and the teaching of the New Testament, but this was a real issue, and I'm going to talk more about it later. Okay? So keep that on. Now, okay, so the um, Bob Murdoch earlier said, Christians didn't fit in socially, which is absolutely right. They didn't worship the state. They were declared to be atheists. Why in the world would they say they were atheists? Because they did not worship the gods of the state. Okay? You can worship anybody and everybody as much as you want to, as long as you worship the Roman state. It's great. You realize, of course, that this has been replayed again in history in some of our own lifetime in Nazi Germany. The state was the power. Hitler embodied the state. We worship him. We worship the state. And there's something in the nature of man that loves raw power in action. may be wrong, but there's something thrilling about it. Now, what else? Why were some other, what are some other reasons why the early church was persecuted? Right, they're doing strange things. Yeah, they meet at night. That's suspicious. Well, remember, they were, for the most part, in a lower class of society. They were slaves. When else could they meet? There wasn't any weekend. Because Constantine, about 335, is the one that declared that Sunday was a holiday. Up until that time, people worked seven days a week. Okay? So these Christian people get together at night. They have strange things. They talk about this, um, you know, greeting each other with a kiss. Well, well, <laughs> we know what that means, you know. So there was suspicion about the, the whole thing. And then there was even the idea that Christians murdered babies or children. And I ask you at the time, why would they think that? 
Why would why do you think Christians would think that or why would the pagans think that? Remember the story of Abraham? Isaac? Okay. Ah, these Christians, strange people. Okay. So they were persecuted. They wouldn't go along. Their lifestyle was a was a in itself a statement against the evils and morally and otherwise in the empire. Okay, everybody got that? All right. One thing to keep in mind, yes, the early church was persecuted, but if you look down through time, there's never been a time historically when some part of the church was not being persecuted. We in America are in a bubble that is unbelievable in the normal history of mankind for Christianity. Okay, have you gained any confidence? Have you had a, do you have a sense of the nature of, of Christian history where people have stood valiantly for the truth and in turn given yourself some confidence, some hope? Others long before us have endured deprivation, have endured doing without, or have risen to places of power and wielded it wisely. Just think about it. Okay. I gave you this quote last week, but I wanted to come back to it. No one does evil so completely or so cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction. I gave you an example of Diocletian, pagan, unbeliever, but has a religious fervent zeal for the Roman Empire and massacres Christians. There you see zeal motivated by religion carrying out evil. Fast forward to today. Do we not see it again? Do we not see it again? By the same token, Constantine declares Christianity legal. A few years later, I forget who right now, but um, and I think it was under Constantine still, it became the declared religion of the empire. New emperors come on, and now, ever since Constantine, you have the church and the state together. Let me remember, there was the controversy over who was the person of Christ. This is in Constantine's time. On the one hand, you had Arius, who said, Christ was not eternal. He came from the Father, but he was not eternal. Athanasius, over here in Alexandria, in Egypt, says, absolutely not. Christ and the Father are the same. They are separate persons, but they are co-equal and of the same nature. This controversy, we find it hard to believe, but this controversy, this hitting, butting of heads over this, began to pervade the entire Roman Empire so that they have, you can go and and read where people would go down to the marketplace and you'd 
be buying some bread from the baker. And the baker, you know, give you a couple of loaves of bread. And they say, by the way, do you think that Christ is eternal or, you know, different? And it became a real problem, which spurred Constantine to say, we got to settle this because I want peace in the empire. And this is creating real division. So they get together, you know, and the Nicene Creed came out of that. But Athanasius won the day. But the people around Constantine would come and go, the church people, and some would be in favor of the Arianism, and some were not. And what happens is, depending on which way the wind was blowing, if you believed that Jesus and the Father are the same and co-eternal, that might be politically favorable today, but next month or next year, it might be different. Athanasius who had won the day practically by himself in the, at the Council of Nicaea, was banished five different times. He was a bishop in Alexandria down there in Egypt. And every now and then, some edict would come from political power that you are out of office. And he was living in the desert. He's living in tombs, which began to be part of the ascetic movement of hermits. You heard, you've heard about, about that. There were others. Well, there's other things we can do. All right. Now, does everybody grasp that? Haven't we, haven't we all at some point in our own Christian experience seen people that were just absolutely convinced of their spiritual position and would not tolerate either a difference or a different point of view and would sometimes wreak havoc. Remember, I gave you the example last time of Theodosius. Constantine's the emperor. You have some other emperors. Theodosius comes along and you had the people in Thessalonica that had uh, set the chariot driver free who was a homosexual And uh, Theodosius says, we can't have this. And at the games, he sends a legion in and kills 7,000 people. Okay, and that's in the name of the church. Okay, so for approximately 1,200 years from Constantine down through time, you have the church managing, if you will, Western civilization along with the politics. Okay, we'll quickly move, move along. We have Carthage, Alexandria, Antioch, and Rome. These are the four big power centers within the church. However, um, I think it was Diocletian who set up the eastern capital of the empire for Rome Diocletian was a Roman emperor, sent up Nicomedia right over here across the river from Byzantium. The reason he did that was because he wanted to be closer to any impending invasion from the east. He wasn't worried about invasions from the west. Constantine comes along, likes Byzantium, and declares that to be his new capital of Constantinople. So now you have Constantinople as the center of politics in the Eastern Empire. 
Rome still retains its power, although not so much politically at this time. But it does retain power theologically in the church. Can you think of some reasons why that might be? Where was uh, Paul, Paul? Paul was in prison and what? Murdered, martyred in Rome, as was Peter. So you have these two great apostles who both martyred here, and the Roman church began to be um, not dominant, but powerful. Oh, it was it was still it still retained political political power as well, but it had shifted over here. By the way, fast forward now, when we interpret the book of, of, of Revelation and we hear about the revived Roman Empire, that may or may not be true from an eschatological standpoint. But do remember that the Roman Empire had an eastern footprint and a western footprint. So if you start thinking about that, don't just focus your mind only on, on Rome. All right. Yeah, and the Seven Hills talks about. All right, Tertullian is living here in Carthage. He made the statement, the blood of the martyrs is the seat of the church. Let's fast forward 1,400 years later. Thomas Jefferson makes the statement over in Virginia that the tree of liberty is watered by the blood of patriots. Remember? So you wonder where TJ came up with that. May have been a copying Tertullian. You, you, you can look it up if you like. I just thought it was kind of clever uh, to uh, think about that. All right. Ignatius of Antioch, one of the early church fathers. Ignatius is here, and Ignatius is very concerned about order in the church. And he says, listen, this is the way it works. You have the laity. You have deacons. You have elders. And you have a bishop. And... Who is the bishop? The bishop of your church is whoever the head elder is. Usually that's the person that's either the most learned or exudes some kind of other social power. So all of the various churches all over then begin to have this model. And then when you have a cluster of churches with clusters of bishops, you then have somebody over that group who is the archbishop. Remember, we don't have Protestantism. We only have one church, okay? And that is what we know of today. And it was the call then as well as now the Catholic Church. Catholic in this sense means universal. If you say Roman Catholic Church, then we're talking about a distinct arm of Christianity not that doesn't include Protestantism. Everybody with me on that? Okay. Bob? Ignatius was um, in the 200s, I believe. Yeah, it's early. Real early. Real early. Okay, he's one of the what we call church fathers. Okay. All right. Um, we've looked, looked at the, the map. There's a lot of things we could talk about there, but let's keep going. We said last time that there was some harmful legacy from Constantine, and I just wanted to 
call attention to this very last one down here. We are now mingling state political affairs with Christianity. We still do not have a distinct New Testament scripture. We have letters from Paul. We have, we have them all, but we have a lot of other heretical things at, at the same time. And we end up now where the church is becoming more and more secularized because it's being viewed as a means to obtain power. That is not hard to understand, is it? So move along. The New Testament Bible is called a canon, or our entire Bible is called a canon. C-A-N-O-N. It means a rule or measure. Okay? And we had heresies in the church. And these heresies created divisions. They've created controversies. There were fights and squabbles about it. But one of the things that the heresies did was they made people begin to think. And they said, what, what do we believe, and why do we believe that? So let's think about that. There were many various uninspired writings from many authors in existence. Some were fanciful, some were artificial. Some had what you kind of, you'd read and say, okay, those are the words, that's what it's talking about. But it didn't seem to have that vitality that Hebrews 4.12 talks about. The word of God is alive. Okay. Okay. You had Gnostic books and teaching that were misleading believers. You had paganism and mysticism. Remember, many of the many of the people that came into the church were former pagans. I mean, they're worshiping in temples, gods of all different kinds, believing just unbelievable kinds of, kinds of things, mysticism, and. So these folks were coming into the church and it would alter the flavor of what was happening. Okay, not hard to understand, I hope. And then Greek philosophy itself. All right, what do we believe? Well, the church fathers were very concerned about this and they began to collect the gospels. So uh, collect what we know of today as the final product of our New Testament. So let's take a look. When was Matthew written? Mark, Luke, John. These are the Gospels and the book of Acts. Matthew was written in the 60s, as was Mark's. If you get into the study of textual criticism, you can just spend the rest of your life there. And there's debate about whether Mark was first or whether Matthew was first. But let's just put them both together in the 60s. We all know that Luke wrote his gospel and the book of Acts. We estimate that that was in the 70s and then the book of John in 85 or so. So you have these two early documents. As they wrote these, they were passed around and other copies were made. Thousands of fragments and pieces of the New Testament were copied. 
We only have seven, if I remember right. We only have seven copies of, the, of some of the writings by Plato. We have thousands, literally, of fragments, scrolls, and pieces of the New Testament. Remember, during Diocletian's great persecution, Christian homes were invaded without warning, and any kind of Christian material, anything Christian, was robbed and destroyed. So if you knew they were coming, you would hide whatever piece of the scripture you might have or anything from the Old Testament or any kind of symbol of that kind of thing. So despite that massive persecution, we have literally today thousands of these documents left. So any questions on this? All right, let's keep going. Now, we all know that Paul wrote his various epistles. We don't know for sure which was first. Was it Galatians or was it First or Second Thessalonians? Both of them are very early. Remember, we have Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection about 33, 34 A.D. And within about 10 or 15 years, we're beginning to get the gospel, uh, get, beginning to get some of the New Testament documents being written. So we have, we're looking at Romans, that massive, masterful book on the whole panorama of God's soteriology, his, his saving plan, one of the earliest of the Pauline epistles around 57, 58. So there you see the various ones. And then, of course, Paul's last two epistles were written to Timothy. Timothy was the bishop in Ephesus. And those are his last two books, First and Second Timothy, very personal books. All right, Philippians, Philemon, and so on. Remember, Judaism had split off from Christianity. We don't want to have anything to do with that heresy, they said, by 100 A.D. Then what was known within Judaism are a group that we call the Masoretes. The Masoretes were Jewish scholars. They were what we would call philologists. They loved words. They were absolutely meticulous about the Old Testament scriptures. And by that I mean, we all know that the Jews wrote on scrolls, right? Okay. And you had guys with quills and were writing each one of those Hebrew letters and they would count them to make sure that they were exactly the same. And they knew the middle letter of the old of what we think of as the Old Testament and they counted them frontwards and backwards. And on every copy that was made, it went through a quality control check you wouldn't believe, counting the letters and making sure they were right, that all the ways that they would count the numbers of letters top to bottom 
horizontally was the same in this scroll as it was from the original. So that's free. But the whole, what we know of as Masoretic text, this is the Hebrew Old Testament. These guys are the ones that did it. And remember, for the most part, they're unbelievers. But we are indebted to them. All right. So that's the Pauline Epistle group. Moving along, we then have what's known as the non-Pauline Epistles. Who is James? Brother of Jesus and Bishop of Jerusalem, the first leader of the Jerusalem church. Remember, James is the leader in, was it Acts chapter 11 when they had a big spat over what should the Gentiles believe or not? And James was the leader of that. Tradition tells us that after James, his replacement as head of the Jewish church, believing church in Jerusalem, was a man named Joseph. And guess who he might be? James's brother, who also would have been stepbrother to Jesus. Because remember, where is it? Isn't it a reference in Mark where it says, your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside. And Jesus turns and says, you know, who are these? My mother, and my brother. But they're named. And they're James and Joseph, which is Joseph. Some other, uh, and, of course, uh, Jude is also a half-brother. You have First and Second Peter. Hebrews was written after the fall of the uh, temple that was destroyed by Vespasian, Titus, and Domitian. First, second, and third John in the 90s and the book of Revelation closing out the canon. If you put it all together, it looks like that. Okay, now, that's the sequence of how it began to be assembled. Any questions? You say, well, that's all very nice, John, that we know about when the books were written and we can see on a timeline how they came together, but how did this all come about? Well, you, of course, you can't read this slide, and that's okay. The reason I have it up here is just to give you some sense of progression. This is the first century, 100, 200, 250, 300, 400 A.D. For those of you that think that one day everybody in the church woke up and went down to the corner Christian bookstore and bought their New Testament finished, bound in your choice, Paul, of leather and burgundy with your own name on it. It didn't quite happen that way. All right? Okay. So what, what happened was, here we are in the first century. We have Paul writing. We have the other apostles. These documents are written. They are inspired by the Holy Spirit. And they begin to get distributed and they start to get made into copies here, by the 200s, we now have, what do we have? And I'll read it to you. We begin to have, within the church writing, we have the four Gospels, the book of Acts, Paul's letters, and James and First and Second John, 
Jude, and so on. But down here, we have the Shepherd of Hermas was a, was a book that had been written, and it is encouraged to be used in private worship. All right. Um, then we move to 250, and this, uh, oh, let me back up here. In this 200, uh, in the year, in the century in, of 200, we have this listing of the books that were considered to be authoritative. A fellow by the name of Dr. Muratori in 1740 found this list, and I think it was in Rome, and it's known as the Moratorian Canon. That is, this is the list that he found that was in use by the churches. Well, time goes by. Now, in around 250, Origen comes along, and he makes a list of what's inspired and what is not. And what's disputed is Hebrews and James and Second Peter and Second and Third John and Jude and the Shepherd of Hermas and some other what we think of as uninspired books. Is this communicating? You see some progression happening here, but there's also some controversy. So we now move to the 300s. And this was a list that was compiled by the church historian Eusebius. Eusebius lived in Caesarea. Does everybody remember where that is? Yes? No? Where's Caesarea? Okay. You have Jerusalem down here. And Caesarea is right here. Caesarea was a big port that Herod the Great built. Lots of stuff I could tell you about that. But Herod had gone to Rome because he was good friends with Octavian, Caesar. All right, And he noticed while he was there that these old boys over here had figured out how to make concrete that would get hard underwater. It's called hydraulic cement. He said, boy, have I got a plan for that. So he came back home and built this man-made port. It was huge, and it was stunning from a building project. And then, being a good politician, he said, I'm going to name it after guess who? Caesar. Caesar, right. And it became known as Caesarea. Now, that's background. Many years later, Eusebius is here about 300. And we go up here. We'll come back. Now, Eusebius says, these are the books. And now the number of disputed books is getting a little smaller. We're not quite sure about James. We're not quite sure about Second Peter. We're not quite sure about Second and Third John, and we're not quite sure about the book of Jude. All the rest in the New Testament are authentic. So that was about 300. By 400, we now, at the Council of Carthage, we now have the, the New Testament list. 
and to be excluded, Shepherd of Hermas, the letter of Barnabas, Gospel of the Hebrews, Revelation of Peter, Acts of Peter, and what's known as the Didache, or the teaching of the Twelve. Okay, so all I want to show you from that is that there was periods of time, there was controversy, some churches, some count, some different, what we call C's, S-E-E, different church organizations said, no, we think this is authentic, no, we think that's authentic, and it progressed. So, what does this all look like, Bob? <laughs> okay, go back. go back. All right, Bob Murdoch is saying he can read here on time. Yes, yeah, that's exactly right. Bob is pointing out that the chart that we're looking at is dealing with the uh, books of the New Testament that was were deemed authentic by the church in the West, and that has begun. And this, the church in the West, has begun to move away from the church in the East. And um, I think Greek Orthodox has in their Bibles some of the books we consider to be apocryphal. Okay, but check me out on that. Okay, so move along. What does what we're talking about look like? Well, here is an actual page of a New Testament document from what's known as the Chester Beatty Collection. Don't get hung up on that. But those are the actual Greek letters from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 33 through chapter 12, verse 9. There are no paragraphs. There are no verse demarcations. It all runs together. We didn't have verses put into the New Testament until about a thousand years later. All right. Sorry to pop your bubble if you really thought Paul said, well, this is Romans 12.1. Well, there, there was some, but when we think of periods and paragraph indentations and those kinds of things, no, we didn't have that. But that's what it really looks like. And you may have already read some of these in the church, along about 200 A.D., we had a transition from scrolls to what we know as a codex. That is, we'd write these pages of papyrus or parchment or leather, and we'd stack them up and sew them together. And that was the forerunner of what we know of as a what? Bible. Yeah, or a book. Okay, right. And so... Um, we have about 5,400 New Testament manuscripts. There are about 100 of papyrus or fragments. And there's some other minor things there. Some are written in what we know of capital letters, and some are written in what we would call lowercase. But that's what it looks like. Sum this up. How did we arrive at determining that the Gospel of Thomas is not inspired and the Gospel of Luke is inspired. Well, we came up, the church came up with what's known as the tests of canonicity. First one was, the writer is known as a godly man having word or mandate from God and is almost always an apostle 
and sometimes there was verbal transmission. Paul says in Romans 6.22, many have come together and said so-and-so. The content of the book that is in question does not contradict other inspired New Testament books, nor the Old Testament. The content of the book is accurate. The book has a living quality. It was accepted and sometimes quoted by other apostles. I always thought it was kind of neat. Peter says in chapter 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, Paul writes some things that are hard to understand. Okay? And we would all agree with him, right? Okay. And they needed to be written during the apostolic period, which is roughly from 30 to 100 A.D., and it needed to be accepted by all of the early Christian church apostles and church fathers as inspired. But note this. The New Testament canon was gradually finalized by the Christian church over a period of about a thousand years. And it was finally at the Council of Trent in 1546 when the church came down and said, this is the New Testament. And that's the 16th century, and that was the year that Martin Luther died. Now, there's, I just mentioned that. There's no, you know, God didn't say, well, Martin, thank you very much, boom, and, you know, and, and there's no correlation between Martin dying and the New Testament being uh, finally uh, set apart. And here are a number of New Testament apocryphal books. Here are 12 that you hear about from time to time, and there's 75 others. And these were determined to be uninspired by the early church, Gospel of the Hebrews, the Apocalypse of James, Questions of Mary, Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Thomas. Some of these things are so old they become new again. Here a couple of years ago, there was a, all kinds of flap about the Gospel of Thomas. And you know, Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. Well, where did we get that? From Gospel of Thomas. The church had already decided by about 300 A.D. that this was a non-canonical book. Okay, and you have others that are listed there. Acts of the Peter and the Twelve, and so on. Okay, does that, make, does that give you some sense of what happened? Is that different than what you thought? Yeah, isn't that something? Now, remember, uh, when we said here 1546 at the Council of Trent, remember that for approximately 1,200 years, in practice, the church was using the New Testament as we know it today. But it was at this point where the church leaders got together and said, you know, let's just really go on record about this. By using it, you mean just the people that under it? Oh, yeah. The church uh, Yeah. yeah. The, uh, anyone, right, the, most of the, what you wouldn't say, the ordinary church members were illiterate. Let's not, don't say unintelligent. Don't say, uh, you know, just keep it at that. They were illiterate. You can have many, many intelligent people, but didn't know how to read or write. 
And usually a church would have not an entire set until much later. They would have pieces of, of Gospels or pieces of New Testament epistles, and those would be read publicly, and that was the only copy there was. Okay. Uh, yes, Virginia. Right. And uh, for those of you that are listening on CD and at some point in the future, um, Virginia Lockey is asking the question, well, doesn't the Catholic Church have some of these uh, New Testament uh, apocryphal books in its version of the Bible? And you are exactly right. They do. There, these are some of the, this listing that, we ha- that I have right here are the more well-known New Testament apocryphal books. There are another whole list of Old Testament apocryphal books. Bell and the Dragon. Maccabees is another one. Right. Now, both the New Testament apocryphal books and the Old Testament apocryphal books have some value. Not necessarily spiritual value, and you don't want to read them for that purpose, but they do have historical value because many times what those writers were writing about were issues that the believers of that time period, either Old Testament believers or New Testament believers, were wrestling with. Okay? So are those valuable to build your doctrine on? No. And that's the issue. So what I've talked about here this evening in this New Testament formation is how did we get our authoritative word of God by which we measure our canon of life for faith and practice? Does that make sense? Oh yes, yes, absolutely. They had that. They had the they had the Old Testament. And remember, for about the first seventy five, eighty five, let's even stretch it for the first hundred years of of the founding of the church, it was mainly Jewish believers. Okay, and they were there. And remember, you can see it, you can feel it, you can read it in the books of Acts as well as some of the other epistles. There was this strong uh, 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 hold of tradition. You know, they were arguing about food laws. You know, we're not going to go over to Ann Kovacs' house on Sunday because she's going to have ham. And we cannot, even though we're believers, we cannot eat pork. Just couldn't think of such a thing. Okay? But meanwhile, we'll go over to Paul's house and we'll have barbecued pork, okay, and love it, all right? So so you had dietary food laws, and you had the whole issue about circumcision. If you were a good believer, you, you know, just had to go through with that right. So you had those kinds of controversies going on. Can't you just see it? I mean, is there any wonder about Jew- Jewish lawyers liking to argue? <laughs> okay, and that's not, that's not meant to be... Uh, you know, um, uh, derogatory. Uh, but remember, remember, 
God's promise to Abraham that he's going to bless the whole world through the Jewish people. This past week in my job, I sat across the table from a doctor, clearly Jewish, by name, behavior, appearance. He's a research scientist that's beyond words, okay? He's dealing with stuff that's going on in our cells at the subatomic level that's making research papers and information available, and he's just one of many. God has used those people, unbelievers though they are, and we should pray for them. But, again, pulling the telescope back, our New Testament came to us by the inspired word of the Holy Spirit through those writers that in turn has been used and brought down through time to us today. Think about it. Remember that church history is one continuous fabric that has come from the cross to right here today. And think about this too. Who led you to the Lord? And who led them? And it was either by the word of God itself or someone telling you that told somebody else that told somebody else. And it goes all the way back. Correct. The oral tradition from the apostles to those illiterate who could not read but could hear and yeah, remember. That's right. And that was passed down. Right. And so, well, um, any other questions or comments? I were considered canon. Yeah. Exactly, right. And, and, that, and that's true. The number of disputed books is relatively small, and, and you heard, heard me reading different ones. Yeah. Well, Constantine is kind of the hinge because he declared Christianity to be legal, and, then, and that was in 313, and I think it was about 325 or 330 when he declared Byzantium to be Constantinople, Constantinople and moved the whole center of power from Rome over here to the east. And then the churches began to grow there. And you had this rise, and at, for a period of time, there were minor squabbles over one thing or another, some of which escalated into real big issues. And you think about it in a small scale. Church gets together and decides they want new carpet. And you know what happens. Somebody wants red and somebody else wants green. And somebody gets all upset and you have a spat. Well, just imagine at the church level dealing with something really important. And here was one that split the East Church from the Western Church. And that is, what day, Ron, are we going to celebrate Easter? Well, the Romans said, you do it on this day. And the Eastern Church said, uh-uh. It's got to be in line with the Old Testament Passover. And this escalated into a really big issue. I'm sorry, I don't have more detail to to give you, but that's just one example of how things split. 
But there's something else that's even more important if you want to talk about the split between Greek and Roman, between the Eastern Church and Western Church, and you are being incredibly patient and kind, but this is good. In the Western Church, we view our salvation from the standpoint of a legal model. We have sinned against a holy God, and we have. But God has declared us justified. Okay? No question about that in the scripture. That is true. The Eastern Church, though, looked at this whole matter of sin from a different perspective. That, was, that is also true, but we don't think about it here in the West. They said, mankind has sinned against a holy God and has broken the image of God within us. Now, let me play this out. The Eastern Church, because of this emphasis and model, made images in their churches and had paintings of the saints with, you know, the halo. The Western church looked at this and said, you're worshiping idols. But the message, the meaning behind it was, it's a reminder that when you sin, you are diminishing, you are breaking the image of God that he has created within you. And that was the model that they attempted to imbue and to teach in the people so that when they came into the church and they saw this image, it wasn't the object to worship, but a reminder that you and you and you have the image of God and care for it, take care of it. Does that make sense? So this, too, created a split between the Eastern Greek Orthodox and the Western Church. Now, there are other Eastern churches besides Greek Orthodox. And, and what, Armenian? Yeah, Armenian, there's Albanian, there's all kinds of small subgroups, and God's been at work in miraculous ways. Marco Polo and his father and his uncle in 1290s, 12, no, it was, Marco Polo is roughly 1250 to 1330 or so, goes to China, and everybody's heard about Marco Polo going to China. They get there, and they meet the Khan, Kublai Khan. And one of the first things Kublai asked, this is not Genghis, Kublai's a descendant. Kublai Khan says to the Polo brothers and Marco, tell me about your religion. And they did, having come from Venice in Italy. And he said, I'm fascinated by that. I want you to go back to your great father. Now, that's what he called what we would call the Pope. And he says, you go back to your great father 
And I want you to bring a hundred of your best scholars here to China. You haven't heard this story, have you? So they finally get back. They go to the Pope. They tell him about this opportunity. The Pope is corrupt. The church is not in great shape at that particular time. They scrape together a, a few guys that are going to go. They, several of them die on the way. Others say, nah, this is too hard for us, and they don't go. Marco Polo and his uncles get back. They tell Kublai about what happened. You don't usually take bad news to the emperor. But it comes to find out Kublai Khan's mother was a Nestorian Christian. What's a Nestorian Christian? Nestorius was declared a heretic by some of the church, but if you read what he wrote, we're gonna if he believes it, and I think he did, we will see him in heaven. And it was a slightly different interpretation of who the person of Christ was. But if you believe it, I think God would be honoring to it. But Nestorian Christianity spread across the Roman Empire and went as far as far China. You and I are going to see believers in heaven that we have no idea where they came from and they're going to have a story to tell. Okay, this is um, all that we have for this evening. You've been very kind. Thank you.